All right, so I need to, I need to give everybody a fair warning here. Uh, just as a fair warning, um, Neil and Holly Jeffers are over here, and they have baby Charlotte. So unless you want to have another baby, I'd stay away. Because I tell you, uh, you look at baby Charlotte right here. Can you just, can you like just hold her up, you know, kind of like the Lion King kind of thing, you know? Ah! <laughs> uh, Charlotte May Jeffers is now a week and a half old, and uh, you know, um, if I if I could switch places with you and you come up and I would hold her, I would totally do that. Oh man, this is probably why Samantha and I have five kids. And uh, well, there's other reasons, but you know, that's uh, you know. All right, so here we go. Now, one of the things you may or may not have noticed about me. But I can sometimes be a, a passionate and an emotional guy. No, I'm not talking emotional like a teenage girl. I, we're not, that's not the kind of emotional we're talking about. But, but, but I find myself to be rather passionate. I mean, I, I find that I love what I do. I, I, I give my all to whatever I, I have going on. I, I become extremely focused, extremely intense on what's happening. And it really, it wraps me up and it, it consumes me. And this is just kind of part of the way that God made me. And uh, I mean, if you were to get me talking about my family, or you get me talking about the church, or you get me talking about my Savior, or if you get me talking about my Seahawks, you know it's going to be a passionate and lively conversation because that's just part of who I am. Now, uh, sometimes being passionate also leads to some other issues. Um, you know, this past week, I had the chance to hang out with a couple other uh, pastors. Uh, these pastors are church planters as well. Yeah, both of them are just a few steps ahead of us. Their churches are a little bit older. And uh, so I, I'm thankful to hang out with them and learn from them. And uh, these guys are pretty passionate about what God has called them to do as well. And I, and I found it intriguing is some of the, sometimes the struggle with being a passionate guy, especially a pastor, is, is something that, that Rick Warren calls PMS. Not that kind of PMS. We're not talking about that kind of PMS. I don't think I could handle that kind of PMS. Um, what Rick Warren says is he says pastors get something called PMS, pre-message syndrome. Okay. So it looks like this. It looks like this. Pastor spends 10, 15, 20 hours during the week. They're reading all these commentaries. They're reading God's word. They're, they're writing. They're, they're learning. They're trying to figure out what God's word says. They write out their message. And they get it all set up. And they pick it up on Sunday night. And you know what? Or Saturday night. And you know what they say? Man, this sucks. This is so stupid. I, whoa, whoa, I don't even know if this doesn't even make sense. And, and it's, it's called pre-message syndrome. I mean, anybody know what I'm talking about? And you pick it up and you're like, man, I just got to start all over. I don't even know what I'm talking uh, Google, is there something I can do, Google? And you're just like, man, this is so dumb. And there, there's another version of PMS that is just as common. And it's called post-message syndrome. And this one usually happens Sunday evening, sometimes Monday morning. And, and you sit back and you're like, man, what did I say yesterday? I'm such an idiot. And you do one of these, you know, these, these face palms, you know, you're like, oh, you know, and, and you sit there and you're like, man, if, if I listen to that message, I don't know if I would even want to be a Christian anymore, you know, and this is, this is post-message syndrome. This happens to pastors and you're sitting there and you're saying, well, that's not true. That doesn't really happen. 
Ask, ask any pastor. PMS, they, they've experienced it. Ask any pastor. You say, well, my pastor doesn't, you know, he, he never experiences that. It's because he's never listened to any of his messages. Because if he would, he'd be sitting there and he'd just facepalm again and again and again. Why, God? Oh, this, this, this doesn't happen every week. But, you know, once in a while, it happens. And, and, and so it's, it's interesting because I'm talking to these other pastors and they're talking about PMS. And I'm like, wow, we all get a little bit of that, right? And, and I began to think, well, why, why do we have this? Why do we feel this way? Why do we feel this weight when we communicate God's word? Why, why do we feel this weight? And I think somehow, I think some way, we kind of feel like, you know, the message really depends on us. We kind of have this wrong view that somehow the message is all about the pastor, about the speaker, about the communicator. Like somehow God needs my help for God to do what God already said he's going to do. I mean, this is, this is what happens. And I know, I know this is God's church. And I know that, that God is the one who's going to bless. That God is the one who's going to lead. That God is the one who's going to guide. But somehow, for some reason, we still feel like, you know, part of it depends on us. You know, you look and you're, you're laughing at the pastor and saying, well, I don't ever experience that because I never have to preach like you do. But the reality is we all live in this rat race. We all have some sort of rat race. And, and what we do is we begin to look around at our peers. We look around to those around us and we quickly think, man, you know, if I'm going to make it, if I'm going to make it as a farmer, man, you see what that guy's doing? We got to do this and this and this. And pretty soon we start feeling this pressure. Hey, we need to get up and do what they're doing. And, and we need to up our game a little bit. Maybe, maybe for you, it's with your family. Maybe it's at your workplace. Maybe whatever it is. We began to look around at our peers and we began to feel this pressure on, you know, I've got to do more. I've got to get more done. I've got to be better. I've got to make some changes so that way I can, can, can be as good as everybody else around me. This is why 1 Timothy 6 is so important for us. We've been in the series in First Timothy called Fight Club, and we've been learning a lot of things. Uh, we, we know that f- this book of First Timothy was written by an older man, an older pastor named Paul. And Paul is writing this to a young pastor named Timothy. And Timothy is the pastor of this church in Ephesus. And this church in Ephesus, man, it's, it's chaos. You've got, you've got false teachers that are in the church and they're trying to lead people away. Uh, you've got people who aren't respecting the pastor because he's young. You've got all these issues going on. There's no honor amongst the people of the church. They're not treating each other very well. And so here's this letter that Paul is writing to Timothy. And, t- and Paul is saying, hey, here's what you do. You've got to fight the good fight. You've got to fight for the purity of the church. You've got to fight for right doctrine. You've got to fight for what is true and what is pure and what is godly. You've got to fight for the proper order of the church. And here in chapter 6, Paul is preparing to wrap up this letter. And he's going to speak about the idea of being content. Of having contentment. Contentment. I can say that word. Yes, I can. This idea of contentment piggybacks on how Paul has been talking in the last chapter about honor. And what Paul is going to say is that if we are going to truly honor and worship God in our lives, if we're going to truly honor God, then we have to make him the number one thing in our life. He has got to be the top priority over everything else. 
He has to be more important than anything else that we can gain apart from, from God. He's got to be number one in our lives. And when we honor God in this capacity, when we make him the most important thing, we realize that that honor uh, is not predicated on specific circumstances or, 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 or situations. He is always worth our honor. He is always number one of our life, no matter what happens. And at that point, when we can say, man, I'm going to honor God, he's going to be number one of my life, no matter what happens, no matter what trials I face, no matter what circumstance I face, when we can make him number one, you know what that leads to? Being content. It leads to contentment. And that is what we all want, right? Contentment means to be uh, to be satisfied it means to be fulfilled. I mean, this is what we want in our lives. It's it's more than just joylessly, joylessly making do with what we have. It's a, it's a means of of peaceful happiness. So what we want to do is we want to be able to look and say, God, what would you teach us about being content? What would you teach us about contentment? Because if that's what we all seek, if that's what we all want, God, how would you teach us about that? So if you have a Bible, we're in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Uh, if you need a Bible, we've got an usher in the back. They'd love to be able to, to put one in your hand. If you just raise your hand, we'll put one of the, give one of these Bibles to you. 1 Timothy chapter 6, and uh, we're going to read the first 10 verses. And uh, the words are also on the screen, so you can follow along on the screen as well. And it says this. Let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God... And the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine, and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and of the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil, suspicions, and constant friction among the people who are depraved in mind and depraved of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through the craving that some have wandered away from their faith and pierced themselves with many pains. And that is God's word for us this morning. Let's pray. God, we do come before you today. And we are so thankful for the opportunity to open up your word. And God, I pray as a pastor, Lord, that I would just step out of the way. Lord, that every one of us in here would know that it is you speaking today. That your word uh, is truth. And as we hear it being taught, Lord, that you would speak to every one of us individually. God, you know exactly where we are. You know what this past week looked like. You know the weights that we carry. And God, I pray that you would meet us right here, right now. Lord, that you would reveal to our hearts, Lord, how we can be content in you. That we can be satisfied in life. God, I pray for your spirit to rest on every one of us. 
that we would feel your presence, and that you would speak to us individually. And God, we ask this in your holy and precious and perfect name. Amen. So here we go. What does contentment look like? How do we find contentment? The first thing that Paul is going to say is that we need to find contentment in our work. He says we have to find contentment in our work. He says in verses 1 and 2, he says this. He says, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. So Paul begins this part of the letter by addressing people in the church who naturally would have some sort of form of discontentment. He's addressing slaves. He's addressing a situation as slaves. Now it's estimated that back in the ancient Roman world that between a third and a a half of the workforce would have been slaves. I mean, this was a large number of people within their culture. And so even within the church, you can picture, you know, a third to a half of the people uh, live under this yoke of slavery. Now, when we hear this word slaves, our minds naturally, naturally begin to wander to a Western mindset. We think of slaves and we think of, of, of uh, America and, and plantations and these types of things. But in the ancient world, it, didn't, it wasn't the same as what we understand it to be. The ancient world, slavery, slavery was not based on race, uh, except for that that resulted from ethnic warfare. Much of slavery, in fact, resulted from very different means. Some people uh, were in slavery because of economic necessity. They had a debt that they couldn't pay, and so they had to become a slave to work to pay it off. Sometimes people were forced into slavery in order for their punishment of a crime to be made. Sometimes, uh, most of the time, slavery was temporary. It was uh, for a time until the bills could get paid off, until the debt has been paid. In fact, some people even chose slavery. Some people said, hey, I would choose to live in slavery because of the security it provides. I know I've got a job. I know my needs are going to be provided for. And it was something that people would even choose to be under. Some, some became slaves because it advanced their economic situation. Because they realized, hey, I can't go and get an education on my own. I can't afford to to get this education. But as a slave, there were opportunities available to slaves for education. So so this is the context of what he's talking about slavery. Now, we think in America, well, slavery is done with, right? Well, it's unimaginable, some of the slavery that still happens in our culture today. And the sex trade and different things. But specifically what we want to look at is we want to see the connection between slaves and masters and our work. We we want to look at the connection between slaves and masters and our work and and where we have a living and and how we make a living and our bosses. Now, you might say, well, I'm not really imprisoned in my work. Some of you would say that. But most of us would say we're not really held there against our will. And, you know, even though sometimes our boss may be a jerk, we can probably say it's not a taskmaster like we would think of. But people can still be discontent in their jobs. Whether that be discontent as, as a mother, whether that be discontent um, as a laborer who works in a warehouse or a business person who works in a company, we can, we, we can be discontent with the jobs that God has placed us in. 
And so what happens is we start to put ourselves as, as number one. We start to put ourselves and, and our needs and our desires above everything else. We become discontent in our job. We become discontent with our bosses. We become discontent with our coworkers. And, and we become frustrated. And so the first thing we need to understand if we're going to find contentment in our work is we need to realize we don't work for men. We work for God. Everything we do is a work for God. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not, not for men. You see, everything we do, we work for Christ. Everything we do, we work for Christ. It's his name on the line. It's his name, it's his reputation on the line in everything that we do. Everything we do, it's all a representation of Jesus. I mean, we don't often think of it. But every, every thought, every word, every action, every deed that we do is a moment of proclamation of our God. Every decision we make is a moment of proclamation of are we going to trust God for who he is? Are we going to honor God as number one in our life? Or are we going to honor ourselves? Every thought, every action, every decision is a moment of proclamation. We proclaim God and everything we, when everything we do, what does your work say about God? How do you proclaim God? You know, I have an example of, a, 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 of kind of this idea on, on we work for God and not for men. My first uh, job in vocational ministry was at Madison House. And uh, I was young when I was hired. I was 22, 23 years old. and really had no clue what I was doing. And they gave me the keys to the car and said, go for it. You're, you're in charge. And so uh, one of the things, we were hired in June, and we knew we had camp coming up in, in, in about a month and a half. And so I said, well, I got these kids. I better go and help them raise some money for camp. And so a first, for one of the first things we did was we got these little cards, and we're, we went to Walmart, and we're selling them outside of, of Walmart. You know, people coming out, hey, you want to buy this pizza card and help me send a, send a kid to camp? And we had this one kid, and I didn't know him very well. And I'm just this ignorant little young guy, had no clue. I'm, oh, I'm doing a good work for these kids. And one of these kids comes out, um, and, and we go back to, to, uh, to our building, and he starts pulling stuff out of his backpack. I'm like, what's that stuff? He's pulling out knives. He's pulling out uh, candy. I'm like, where'd you get that? Well, I got it from Walmart. Well, you didn't have any money. How'd you get it? Well, I just kind of took it. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is like, welcome to the job, right? We've got this kid who's, who's shoplifting from Walmart when we're doing ministry there, right? And I'm like, oh my gosh, face palm, right? And uh, so I'm like, I don't know what to do. So we took this kid back and we brought the stuff back and I'm like, oh my gosh. Then we get up to our first year at camp. And again, you know, we've got all these kids and, and you know, they oftentimes say the right thing, but sometimes they don't do the right thing and, and, uh, and, and it, I have no clue. And the first day we're at camp, the first day that we're at camp, I think there was a no diving or, or no flipping rule at the pool. And of course, one of these kids, when my back was turned, he decides he's going to dive and do a flip off the diving board. But he hits his head on the diving board, goes under the water, and, and, and it starts, you know, oh, my back, my neck. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. And the nurse comes out and puts him on a backboard and straps him in. And they call an ambulance and, and take him down uh, back to Yakima in an ambulance. And I'm just like, oh, my gosh, what am I doing here? And, uh, you know, then these kids start talking about La Llorona. Anybody know anything about La Llorona? All right, it scared this white boy to death. 
some, some ghost story of some mom, and she weeps at the river. And so these boys, they knew I'm new to this. And so these boys, I'm in my cabin, and they went down to the river, and they start making this weeping noise. Oh! And I'm like, oh my gosh, this place is haunted. And I'm, you know, oh my gosh, this is, this is what we do. And then there was a year at camp where, where we've got this kid and this kid had come from a pretty rough background. Most of these kids came from a rough background. And th- this one kid, and specifically, he, uh, he had probably uh, been on drugs every day for the past three months before we go to camp. And uh, we go to camp, and it's interesting. I notice this kid, he's just sleeping all week long because he's coming down off this high. And, that, and that's what his body's doing to, to, to level itself out. He's got to catch up on the sleep that he's missed. And, 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 and because he's coming off this high, because he's, he's coming off this, this down, he's, he's, he's very angry. And I remember we're having this conversation, and he's mouthing off and doing these different things. And I'm like, hey, man, hey. And, and this guy, no, he's big. He's like Neil's size, you know. And I'm like, I'm like a quarter of Neil's size. I'm like Neil's right leg, you know. And this guy is getting up in my face, and he's getting angry, and he's yelling. And he reaches back, and he punches the wall. Fortunately, it wasn't my face. He punches the wall. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, I could have been dead. I could have been me, you know? And, I'm, and I quickly realized, you know, man, this is tough. And I realized, you know, I'm not working for man. I'm not working. I'm working for God. Because I tell you, if I wasn't working for God, I would have checked out a long time ago, right? I would have said there's something a lot easier I could be doing. But when you, when you realize that we're working for God, Man, you say, this is an opportunity. And I, and I love, because by the end of that week, that, that young man that was so angry, you know, I, another funny story is after he did that, he was so angry that he took his suitcase and he threw it in the river, right, with everything in it. And, uh, and, and, and we couldn't find it floating down the river. They found it like three weeks later, at, down the river a half a mile. They found all of his stuff and brought it back to him. Like, oh, that's really nice of you. But by the end of this week, this young man, this young man is weeping at the front. He's saying, Kevin, I need to change. I need my life to change here. And, and I don't want to go back the same. I want to I change tonight. And that's, I mean, that's what it's about. We, we, we don't work for man. We don't work for a paycheck. We work for God. And the first way that we're going to find a contempt is we realize everything we do is a work for him. And Paul says, Paul says specifically in verse 1, he's going to deal with how a a Christian should work for a non-Christian boss. He says, Let all who are under the yoke of slavery as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. He says, We are to work hard so that God's reputation would not be reviled. This literally means would not be criticized. That God's name would not be abused. Now, I know sometimes uh, it's easier to say, well, you know, I don't want to work so hard for this guy. This guy, my boss, he's a non-Christian and he's kind of a jerk. You know, he's just, he's not a very good guy. Maybe he's morally bankrupt. Maybe he has all these issues. And we say, well, I don't want to work hard for him because he's just not fair and he's not a good guy. But Paul is saying that even a non-Christian boss is worthy of full honor, worthy of full respect. Because if we disrespect him, it says God's reputation is at stake. If we disrespect those who we are in authority to, God's reputation is at stake. 
That's a big deal. And he says, what happens when we work hard for our boss, when we work hard for that non-believing man or woman, what happens is we essentially, we earn the right to be heard. We earn the right to be heard. You show your love for Christ by the way you work for your employer. I had a story of this where uh, as a young man, um, Samantha and I hadn't been married very long, and I was working at Ace Hardware at the, at the warehouse. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm this Christian guy, and, the, you know, there's all these guys. And in a warehouse, typically, you know, guys, they're a little bit gruffer. You know, they talk a little bit gruffer, and they, they do things a little bit gruffer, you know. And, uh, you know, I'm, again, I'm just this skinny little white guy. I have no clue what's going on. And, uh, but I said, I'm going to work hard for this guy, and I'm going to work hard for my boss. And, uh, you know, it's interesting because uh, during the time that I was working there, yeah, th- this man found out, hey, you're a Christian. And uh, it was interesting because before, before I left that job, he started having family issues. He started having problems in his marriage. And he said, hey, Kevin, would you just, would you just pray for me? Would you, would you pray for my marriage right now? I don't know how to pray. I don't know what to do. But Kevin, would you pray for me? And I said, absolutely. See, I earned the right to be heard. And this is what happens when we work hard, for, when we work hard for, 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 for in, in a company, for a boss that may not be a believer. We earn the right to be heard, that we can have the opportunity to say, hey, this is who God is. This is how God feels about you. We earn that right. So Paul says to a, a Christian who's working for a non-Christian boss, work hard for them so that God's reputation wouldn't, wouldn't be uh, abused. And secondly, Paul says in verse 2, he's going to talk about how a Christian employee should work for a Christian boss. He says, those who have believing masters must not, disrespect, not, must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. He's saying, don't take advantage of working for another believing man, for a Christian I mean, I mean, sometimes we have the, this thing where you think, well, hey, I got a connection, you know. And so we show up an hour late and we're like, man, boss, I'm sorry. I, I was praying this morning, right? I was, I, was, I was praying. I'm sorry I'm late. And, you know, tomorrow I'm going to be a little bit later because I got to go to Bible study, right? You, I mean, you, you feel me, right? It's Bible study, right? And, 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 you know, we think sometimes because we have a Christian man, we think, well, you know, a Christian boss, they're going to be a little bit more forgiving, right? They're going to they're gonna, uh, give me special breaks. They're going to look past my, my laziness or my issues because, hey, we connect on a Christian level, right? And Paul says, no. Paul says that if you have a Christian boss, a Christian man or woman in authority over you, that you are to work harder because it leads to a, even a clearer service to God. As you work for that Christian person, that Christian man, that Christian woman, you are making an investment into God's kingdom in partnership with that Christian boss. So Paul says, if you're working for a Christian man, a Christian woman, you're supposed to work even harder. Even harder for God's kingdom to continue to expand. So let me just ask, how many of you are dissatisfied with your job? How many of you get frustrated with where God has placed you? See, maybe it's not a job problem. Maybe, maybe it's a heart issue. Maybe you haven't learned yet to view your job as service to God. Because everything we do is a proclamation about Him. So are you concerned about the sermon that you're preaching in your workplace? You may not have to speak a word, but your actions are a sermon about God. 
What kind of sermon are you preaching for your work? Number two for us this morning is we are to find contentment in our faith. We don't want to be complacent in our faith. We don't want to just be satisfied. We want to be completely satisfied and fulfilled. Verse 3 and 5, Paul is going to shift and bring up once again these false teachers that are attacking the church. So Paul says in verse, verse 3, he says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine, what doctrine is he talking about? If anybody teaches a different doctrine, what doctrine is Paul talking about? Paul already laid out this different doctrine. He said in, in chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, he's saying the, tr- the saying is trustworthy, deserving a full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him to eternal life. See, this is, the, this is the doctrine they're supposed to be holding to. And Paul says, if anybody teaches any different doctrine, it doesn't matter what that doctrine is. And maybe asceticism, which is what they were teaching uh, in the church in Ephesus, that you have to abstain from, from worldly pleasures if you're going to be a Christian. Maybe, maybe it's a different doctrine. You know, we have all these new doctrines in our day and age. You know, the best you now. That's what God wants. You know, maybe it's, you know, the signs and wonders. You know, if you're going to be a Christian, you've got to be filled with signs and wonders. Or, uh, uh, you know, you also have this idea that, you know, it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you're sincere, right? I mean, these are, these are the different doctrines that we hear in our day and age. And Paul's saying, if anybody teaches any of these different doctrines, different than what? Different than the gospel. Different than Jesus Christ, risen crucified, risen, and coming back for us. Okay? Huh. Uh, you know, the, uh, the, the other fun doctrine that we hear about today is this uh, idea of, 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 of prosperity gospel. You know, that God wants everyone to be healthy and wealthy. And if you're really right with God, that you're going to have everything perfect in your life and you're going to have good health and, and, and good wealth. I mean, these are the different doctrines that we're dealing with. And Paul says, if anybody teaches any of these, a different doctrine, he says this. He says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, Paul says, sound words. This word sound is a, is a medical word meaning healthy. Literally means healthy. See, Paul's saying is there is a teaching that promotes spiritual health. And, and spiritual wellness. And it comes from the gospel. That's why it is the core, the foundational uh, doctrine that we have to continue to come back to as a, as a church. And as Christians, we always come back to the gospel. Because if anybody teaches anything else, it's going to lead us into an unhealthy place. It's going to lead us where uh, we, we are not in, in health and wellness. So Paul, verse 4, Paul is going to describe these false teachers. He says that they are puffed up with conceit. They understand nothing. He says they have an unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarrels about words which produce envy and dissension and slander and evil and suspicions and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind, depraved of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. You see, he said that they will, they will have unhealthy cravings for controversies. Unhealthy cravings for controversies. This contrasts what Paul said in verse 3 about sound instruction. 
You've got sound instruction, this, this right and this good doctrine that's been taught. And then you have these, these unhealthy controversies. Unhealthy means sick. It's the exact opposite of that word sound. So you've got, you, you've got, a, you've got a, a doctrine that is sound and that is healthy, that promotes wellness. And you've got a, a teaching that is sick and promotes sickness and, and unhealthiness. You know, these false teachers, they're all about cutting edge. They're all about pushing boundaries. They're all about creating debates and controversies, which leads to a breakdown in relationships. And so rather than promoting authentic Christian community, these teachings destroy community. And these guys, these false teachers, end up self, self, uh, self uh, uh, secluding themselves from everybody else. And they come off on their own. They become their own little, uh, their own little magnet. See, for all of us, contentment can be found when we see the fruit of accurate beliefs and spiritual practices. Are you spiritually healthy? I mean, as Paul talks about having a, 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 a sound, sound spiritual health, do you have a sound spiritual health? Or you say, man, I'm kind of struggling through this. Because God's desire and what Paul's trying to communicate is that we're to find contentment in our faith. There is a spiritual health that we need to find, that we need to be at. Third thing that Paul says is, he says, we need to find contentment with our finances. We need to find contentment in our finances. Now, I know money in the church is a touchy subject. I don't want to talk about money in the church. I mean, you know, churches have a bad rap on, on always uh, being too concerned about money. And that's not the desire. That's not what we're trying to do here. But the reality is finances are a part of our lives. All of us have finances. We have to pay bills. We have to survive. And you know, finances are also a reality within the church. And as we talked about earlier, in order for us to honor God in our lives, we have to make him number one above everything else including our finances. So we're going to say, God, would you give us a vision for, for our resources, for our finances? This isn't pastor's opinion. This isn't the church trying to take an offering. This is, God, would you give us a proper vision for our finances? So Paul says in verse 6, he says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. You know, money is one of the hardest things for us to let go of. It honestly is. I mean, we live in a money-based society. We, we, we need money to survive. And, 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 but, but the reality is, uh, it's one of the hardest things for us to let go. And even within the church, money has crept into this, this health and wellness, this prosperity gospel. And, and, and we, we have this, 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 this false idea that God wants you to be healthy and wealthy. And, and the only way that God blesses you, unless you is, 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 is through health and wellness. But what I find is a person who depends on material things for peace and for assurance, they never become satisfied. We talk about being content. Have you noticed you never become content with material things? Material things always have a way of losing their, their, their appeal. I mean, for us, Samantha and I, we, when we got married... 25, 30 years ago, however long it was. It was 12 and a half, but, you know, it feels like uh, it's been a blessing to be married for such a long time. So <laughs> when we got married, we bought this TV. And, uh, you know, with, with all these kids, the TV started to break. And so uh, we just looked for a, a, a donated TV and found a 27-inch uh, just little 
ugly little TV. And uh, it was great. This is what we used for uh, two or three years. And it was fun because whenever the kids would watch TV, we'd all have to be like 12 inches so we could see, you know. And you'd be watching a football game and, and it didn't really matter who was playing because you couldn't really tell because the guys are all like this big, you know. And uh, so we decided, we decided, hey, fine, let's go buy a TV. And so we went down to Costco and we're looking at the TVs and we found a, a, a good TV for a good price, one of the flat ones. And we thought, yeah, you know, that's a pretty cool TV. And uh, so we came home and hooked it up and the kids are like, wow, everything's so big, you know. And it's like, I didn't realize Jack Black, Jack Black, he's really big. You didn't realize that on the small TV, but, he, you know, he's a big guy. And, uh, and so we love this TV, but then the problem is, is I went to my father-in-law's house for, for Thanksgiving that year. My father-in-law just bought a new TV as well, but his was just a little different than mine. I mean, it was flat, but, but I don't know. It's it got some weird lights on the side or something, so it was LED, LCD, something. And as you're watching the TV, it's like the guys in the movies are jumping off at you. And it's, like, it's like, wow, this is so much better than mine. And pretty soon I'm thinking, like, how can I justify, you know, hey, we don't, you know, we need to upgrade our TV. You know, how quickly material things lose their appeal. If anybody wants to buy me a TV, I'd love to take one of those, you know. But, uh, you know, it's, it's funny how quickly our material things, they lose their appeal. I mean, I mean, how many of us started with, with, with an iPhone 3? And then the iPhone 4 came out, and you're like, oh my gosh, look at that iPhone. And then the really crazy one was when, when Siri came out, right? I wanted Siri on my phone. I wanted to be able to talk to Siri and say, hey, Siri. Would you call my wife for me? It's the dumbest thing. Why would you do that, you know? But it was cool. And pretty soon, my, my iPhone that did everything I needed it to do, it wasn't as cool. I wanted the one that I could talk to and have it do things for me, right? We, we, we buy into the slide that if we can just get more, then we'll be satisfied, that we'll be content. I mean, surveys have found that people tend to look at those that make twice as much of them and say, man, if I just had that, I'd be set. So for those that make $15,000, you know, if I could just make $30,000, man, I, everything would be gravy. I'd be good. I'd be, I'd be happy. And those that make $30,000, they say, if I could just make sixty, dollars that would be the sweet spot. You know, I, I, I'd be good there. And those that make sixty, dollars they say, man, if I could just get to one twenty, dollars if I could just get to $120,000, man, everything would be good. And you want me to keep going? I mean, if I... The person that makes 120, if they could get up to 240, you know, that would be, I'm public school educated. Give me a break. At 240, that would be the sweet spot, right? I mean, this is what the surveys say. If, if we can just get a little further, why is it that we buy into the lie that if we just get more, that we'll be content, that we'll be satisfied? How much money is going to make you satisfied? See, I stole... Again, we're supposed to find contentment with our resources, with our money. And I stole this definition of contentment from my brother-in-law. He says, contentment is an inner sufficiency that keeps us at peace in spite of our outward circumstances. Contentment is an inner sufficiency that keeps us at peace in spite of our outward circumstances. Being content with where God has, has placed us, and despite whatever else is going on, Despite whether or not we have all the money in the bank or whether or not we have the last dollar in our name. Paul wrote in Philippians 4, he says, For I have learned in whatever situation that I am to be content. I know 
how to be brought low, which means I know how to be broke, and I know how to abound, which is to have plenty. He said, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And that is always to make sure God is number one in our lives, to make sure that God is a top priority. See, what we need to realize is only Jesus can satisfy our hearts. Only Jesus will satisfy us. They'll satisfy us. Only Jesus will give us contentment. True contentment comes from our relationship with God, not from the wealth in our wallet or our bank accounts. Paul says in verse 7, he says, we, we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of it. I mean, I remember hearing somebody say uh, that anything that you can't depart from, anything that you can't depart from, you probably don't own it. It owns you. I mean, the reality is you were born... Uh, Charlotte was born, and did she have anything when she was born? Nothing. And guess what's going to happen? 75 years down the road, when, when, when Charlotte it, it passes away, guess what she's going to bring with her? Nothing. Naked, you come into the world, and naked, you leave. Dave Ramsey, Dave Ramsey, I don't know how many of you guys listen to Dave Ramsey. He says, we buy things that we don't need with money we don't have in order to impress, impress people we don't even like. I mean, this is, this is the truth of how we live. Paul says in verse 8, he says, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Food and clothing. Now, I begin to say, well, what kind of food are we talking about? Because there's different kinds of food. What kind of clothes are we talking about, right? There's different kind of clothes. But imagine, imagine the simplicity of life if we were just satisfied with having food and clothes. Imagine the simplicity. Imagine the freedom that we would experience. It's been said that most of us know the price of everything, yet we don't know the value of anything. Our lives are filled with luxuries that we have forgotten how to enjoy life without those. And quickly we become confused about what is a need and what is a want. Well, I need this new iPhone. Teenagers, mom, dad, I need this new phone. I need this, this new this. I need this new that. How quickly we become confused on the difference between needs and wants. Imagine how free we would be if we were just satisfied with, with, with clothes and food. And this really comes down to a simple question. It comes down to this question. Is Jesus enough? Is Jesus enough for you? Where does your joy, where does your meaning, where does your value, where does your purpose, where does your satisfaction in life come from? Is it Jesus? Is Jesus enough for you? In essence, what Paul's talking about is, is, is people declare Maybe not with their mouth, but people declare with their life that Jesus isn't enough. So they need whatever it is. They need money. Jesus isn't enough, so they need money. Jesus, Jesus isn't, isn't enough, so they need sex. Jesus isn't enough, so they need, uh, they need a relationship. Jesus isn't enough, so, so they need a, a better career. Jesus isn't enough, so they need a, a better education. Jesus isn't enough, so they need whatever it is. It becomes a false gospel. 
And we say, hey, I will find my joy. I will be satisfied if, if, if I just get this. And it's a false gospel. It will never satisfy us. Money will leave you like, like, like a one-night stand. You'll be left hungry, waiting, and saying, I, I, that didn't satisfy me. It filled me for a moment, but it has not given me a true feeling of contentment. So Paul's going to end this passage with a warning for those who choose to remain content. He says in verses 9 and 10, he says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. See, Paul is giving a warning to every one of us. He's saying riches are a trap. The love of money. It's not money itself. It's the love of money. It leads to bondage, not freedom. Instead of giving satisfaction, it creates additional lusts. It leads to all kinds of evil. And the results of loving money, the Paul writes are so vivid. He says that it plunges people into ruin and destruction. This is a picture of someone drowning. Someone drowning in debt overtaken by lust and bondage. I mean, this is why we as a church, we want to open up God's word and say, God, would you speak to this idea of money? Would you speak to our finances? Paul's saying, don't let money be your savior. Because it won't bring joy, it won't bring meaning, it won't bring purpose, it won't bring satisfaction. He, what God's word is going to teach us is that we use money and we can love people through it. God's given us money. If God has given you money, use money to love people. That's what it comes down to. Now, restoration, uh, here at Restoration, Nate says weekly, and this is what we believe. We believe that giving to the church is a part of our worship. It's part of how we worship and honor God. Now, uh, uh, when we come to this idea of giving, and you say, well, I don't trust Restoration Church with our money. That's okay. We just want you to be obedient to what God has called us to do. So God has called us to give. So we would encourage you, give to where you feel confident. You'll say, well, how much are we supposed to give? What are we, you know, how do we do this? The Old Testament taught that 10% of our resources was supposed to be given as a tithe. The Old Testament, the Old Testament speaks more of our giving as being a, uh, giving a generosity as being a posture of our heart. It's a posture of our heart. It's not something that we check off a list and we say, well, now it's done. Now I can be done. I, I, I did my good deed. It's, it's actually a posture of our hearts, how we live. Some of you are new to church. You're new to giving. Maybe you just got to start with something. Say, I'm just going to give something. And that's your first step. Maybe some of you are saying, man, you know what? I need to be given 50% of what God has given me. I, I, God has blessed me. And I, I can give much more because of what God has done in my life. So how do we wrap this up? We do this. What was your leak? What was your week like? What is your life like right now? Are you content? Not just making do, but are you content? Do you have an inner sufficiency, a sense of fulfillment and satisfaction, regardless of your outward circumstances? See, we look for contentment and satisfaction in so many things. In, in, in money and relationships and good works and fame and family and popularity. But all these things, they never satisfy us. Even religion. Because of our sin, 
Isaiah says that even our good works, our religion is like filthy rags. We can't work hard enough to meet God's approval. So you don't have to keep looking, though. You don't have to keep looking for that satisfaction because God has offered it to you. He's offered it to you through Jesus. He's offered it to you through Jesus. He's the only one who can satisfy our souls. He's the only one that can forgive us of our sins. If you have not surrendered your life to Jesus, would you do so today? Because today he offers you peace. He offers you satisfaction. He offers you contentment. Where you don't have to live the rat race anymore. Because God has said, I will give you all that you need. And I will give you that peace. I will give you that satisfaction. So would you surrender to Jesus today and ask him to be your peace? Ask him to be your purpose. Ask him to be your satisfaction. Ask him to be your rock to lean on. And if, and if you're a believer in here today, isn't it great that he's our contentment? Isn't it great that he, he's going to give us everything that we need and that we can be completely satisfied in him? He is our reason to hope. He is our reason to wake up every day, no matter what this past week looked like. His grace and his mercy is new to us this morning. Amen? Let's pray. God, I pray for every one of us in here today. Lord, I pray that as we talk about content, being content, God, I pray that you would allow that to happen in our lives, that we would be at peace with, with, with who you are, that we would be at peace with ourselves, that we would have satisfaction in life, that you would be our purpose, that you would be our peace, that you would be our satisfaction. God, I pray for those in here today who, who don't have that contentment, who are struggling with life, who are seeking pleasure and seeking fulfillment in everything else. God, I pray today that they would surrender to you and say, God, I'm yours. God, I invite you to be my savior. God, I ask that you would give me your, 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 your peace, that you would give me your satisfaction. God, I pray that today you would exchange my sinfulness for your righteousness, that, that today I would become your child. God, you know what every one of us need today. And God, I pray that whatever it is, that you would provide it. That you would give us peace and contentment. God, we love you and praise you. And we ask is now as we prepare to respond to you through worship, that you would help us to do that. That we would respond to you however we need to. If that means today, we right now, we need to stop and we need to pray before you and, and, and cry out to you. God, I pray that we would do that right now. And God, I pray if that means that we just need to close our eyes and, and, and worship you for who you are and what you've done, that you would give us that ability to get lost in you now. God, we love you. We praise you. And we ask this in your perfect name. Amen.